Okay, so share a little bit about my family with you. Shortly after I got on sabbatical, I got a call from my sister. Said she's having a big shindig for her 50th birthday party. Could I come? I was like, I don't think so. I said, I'm being gone three months. And the last thing I'm going to do is on my week back, ask for another week off. <laughs> then she calls me, I don't know, a week or two later, whatever. I'm, I don't get, have these dates right in my head. She said, you know what? We decided she, she was engaged. We're going to get married at my birthday party, but we're not going to tell anybody. We're telling you, of course, because you're not going to be there, but we're going to surprise everybody who shows up for my 50th birthday party, and we're going to get married. So my brother sends me a text. He says, do you want me to read something to them since you can't be here? Her name's Debbie. His name's Rick. Let me tell you the text he read on my behalf, and this will help you understand the relationship I have with my sister a little better. Debbie. Congratulations, now that she's reading, reading this at the wedding reception with the toast. Debbie, congratulations on your bar mitzvah. What, this isn't a bar mitzvah party? Oh, good, I was afraid I missed it. I'll make sure to be there next year for your, your bar mitzvah. No, seriously, you and Jerry are gonna make a wonderful couple. His name's Rick. <laughs> okay, okay, no, seriously, I love you loads. And Rick, he's a great guy. I'm sure you'll continue to be happy together, and what more could an older brother ask for? I just want to let you know uh, we had some fun this week. I was told it went over quite well at the party. So <laughs> that's what I missed yesterday. But it was fun to know that I can be that silly with people, and they get me, and they don't you know, get upset with me for just being me. It was kind of fun. All right, well, I'm going to open up the scriptures this morning. And something else I want to share with you, a little bit about me, you know, my, my personality. I like to keep things simple. And I need things simple because that's the only way I can keep up with them. So if I hear a really big, difficult thing, I like to wheedle it down to its basics, you know, and then I, that's what I know. I don't know the rest. I just know that. Like when I was in college... And I was, I was in Bible college, and I have to study. So I, I, for an exam, I'd read a chapter, and then I'd write what that chapter meant in a paragraph. Now I knew what the whole chapter was, but it was reduced to a paragraph. And I thought, hmm, well, I can put that paragraph down to a sentence, and I'd put it down to a sentence. And then I would oftentimes put it down to one or two words. And that was one or two words would let me know the big picture, but they would kick into my mind those sentences, which would kick into my mind the paragraph, and I was a good student. And I'm always like that. If you say, Steve, I need you to, you know, I need you to get in your car and drive north on Tanka Verde and, and turn left at River and then turn right and go up Oracle, and I need you to see that there's a gas station on the left-hand corner on the south side of the street. They got Doritos there. Please pick up a package for me, and then I want you to go back down the way you came. It's like Doritos on the corner. Got gotcha. you. <laughs> you know, that's all I need. That's all I want. I always reduce things to bullet lists. You give me a paragraph, I want a list. And I realized they actually made a principle. It's universal. Everybody knows it, and they named it after me. It's called the KISS principle. Keep it simple, Steve. K-I-S-S. You've heard of it, right? Yeah. Just for me. So, now that you know my mind a little better, sitting around in my meditations, 
What does God want from us? Well, we got a whole book about that, don't we? But that's too long. Keep it simple, Steve. How can we just get it down to the bare basics? And you probably know Jesus did the same for us. I mean, he sent Moses up to the mountain. He wrote five books, but all he came down is with 10 bullet lists. You know, I'm the Lord your God. Do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do... That's what I'm talking about. That's what I like. You got the whole Torah. How do you simplify it? Love God with all your heart, your neighbors, yourself. That's what I'm talking about. But what's that mean? What do we do? So there's another list in Scripture from a verse of Scripture, and I'm going to share that with you, and that's going to be what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we go there, I found this cool little video to introduce it. So let's kill the lights, and let's take a look. Integrity. Pass it on. Save the day. A message from the Foundation for a Better Life. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Here it is. Micah 6 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those guys, it's like they knew that verse. This was a perfect opportunity to steal some beer or soda or whatever it was. It's what you would have expected them to do. They're like, oh, man, their door opened up. Let's go fix that for them. It's pretty cool. So three things. Here's my bullet list. What does God want us to do? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. So we're going to look at those three things and hopefully get out of here this morning equipped to be better people than we walked in this morning. The first one is to act justly. That comes from the Hebrew word mishpat, when I read different translations of the Bible, this word mishpat is sometimes translated as judgment, and sometimes it's translated as justice, and there might be some other words associated with it too. So I opened up the, uh, you know, the Hebrew dictionary, ancient Hebrew dictionary, and here's some of what it said about mishpat. It said, a verdict pronounced judicially especially a sentence or a formal decree. And then it uses the word justice, and it says, including a particular right or privilege to be judged, judgment, order, ordinance, right. And that's only part of the definition. So what do I need to do? I need to sum it up. What's it mean? That's too much. Make it simple, Steve. Keep it simple, Steve. So here's my definition of mishpat, for Michael, Micah, what does God want us to do? To act justly, which means to discern right from wrong and do the right. That's it. God wants us to sit there, figure out what's right, what's wrong, and always do the right part of it. Mishpat. So how do we do that? How do we, what system do we apply to make the right choices? And obviously I could talk about that for weeks, honestly. But... Uh, Keep it simple principle, three little pointers that you can take home and start working on today to help make wise choices and to act justly. The first one is ask yourself this, 
what does God's word say on the specific matter? You might want to underline that word specific. A lot of people take Bible verses and apply them to things that to them seem similar and then make that God's word. But that's not God's word. The Bible verse is God's word. And you've kind of twisted it a wee bit to fit into your category. Not a good thing to do. What does God's word say on this specific matter? And it's okay to say God's word does not address this specific matter. Because God's word doesn't address everything specifically. Then you can ask yourself, well, is there something similar, a principle orientation in the scripture that deals with this? But my biggest concern isn't whether or not that specific thing is mentioned in the Bible. My biggest concern is can you find it in the Bible? How well do you know the Bible? How do you know if it's specifically mentioned in the Bible if you don't know the Bible well? So here's what you do. Not everybody knows the Bible well, so start studying it more, of course. But uh, ask one of the elders. Ask one of the small group leaders. Hey, you know, I ran across this thing. Does the Bible say anything about it? And get their take on it. And then ask somebody else who's mature and get their take on it. And then ask a third person. And the more serious the matter is, the more people you can ask, mature people. Google it. Where, does the Bible talk about Halloween? Does the Bible talk about drinking alcohol? Google it. Now, be careful with Google. Because just because something's at the highest on the page doesn't mean it's the, the rightest or the smartest. You have to only use that as one resource amongst many. All the people in the universe have put their opinion into Google, and now they're there for you to find. But what you can find in Google is maybe related Bible verses. Just be careful that you don't get your theology from Google. Because you open up YouTube, see this video, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's an awesome video. He's right. Who is this guy? Who, do you know them? Do you know anything about their background, their integrity, their education? They might have just snookered you. They might be better at snookering than you are at getting snookered. That didn't work out right. <laughs> just be careful is all I'm trying to say. What does God's word say on that specific matter? That's the first thing you want to ask yourself to act justly. The second thing is... Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't be hot-headed. Don't assume something is exactly as it looks. Be a little smarter than that, a little more mature than that. And I'm speaking to myself, too. I have a tendency to jump to conclusions, and we shouldn't do that. I see somebody stepping out of my office. I walk in there, and something's broken. They must have done it, right? Because out of the three days I've been gone, I saw somebody step out of my office, so they must have done it. Maybe they heard it break and went in to check it out. Maybe they were in there to fix it. There could be a million reasons they came out of my office, one of which could be they broke it. But I don't need to just go there, you know. You see a guy talking to a girl behind the building at lunchtime. A book of life. What conclusions are you going to jump to? None. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Don't jump to conclusions. <laughs> Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. This is what Jesus said. This is what he says. This is his advice to us. All right. You want to act just, justly? Research what the Bible says on the matter. You want to act justly? 
Don't jump to conclusions. Think things through thoroughly. And thirdly, look at everything through the lens of love. You know, if I'm looking at the world through the lens of love, the last thing I'm going to do is blame somebody for breaking something in my office because they walked out of my office. You know, what does the lens of love do? Oh, wow, that thing broke. Were you in there? Are you okay? Oh, no, I wasn't there when it broke. Oh, well, that's good. We don't do that enough. We need to do that more. Again, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. You guys are just listening in, and I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, those three things. We can get more in depth. I found this cool little video on YouTube that gave a much more in-depth, though brief, description of how to make decisions in an ethical fashion. And I thought it was well done, so I'm going to share that video with you. Let's kill the lights and let's take a look. Can we get these two? Thanks. Ethical decision-making, choosing between the self and the other. When talking about ethical decision-making, one has to be aware that there are two ways of approaching this process. The individualistic approach, or where a person is responsible for his or her own decision-making, and consideration is given first to how it affects the self, rather than the other. There is also what might be called the communal approach, or where members of communities are partially responsible for the behavior of their members, and thus make decisions based on that view. Consider the debate about the legalization of drugs. Advocates argue that they have an individual right to do with their body as they please. A more communal approach would ask them to look beyond the individual and reflect on issues of public safety and the potential harm to others. In addition, when the interests of the larger community are included in any debate, solutions can be offered. What kind of drug policies will promote the good of both the individual and the community? It can only lead to a greater understanding of the issue for both sides. Should the self or other come first when making decisions? The conflict between individual and community is not easily reconciled. Anthropologist Colin Turnbull has written about the Mbuti pygmies of the Congo. The Mbuti have long employed nets of twined liana bark to catch their prey, sometimes stretching the nets for 300 feet. As Turnbull came to understand, Mbuti hunts were collective efforts in which each hunter's success belonged to everybody else. But one man, a rugged individualist named Sifu, had other ideas. When no one was looking, Sifu slipped away to set up his own net in front of the others. Word spread among camp members that Sifu had been trying to steal meat from the tribe, and a consensus quickly developed that he should answer for this crime. Sifu defended himself with arguments for individual initiative and personal responsibility. He felt he deserved a better place in the line of nets. The tribe responded that if that were the case, Sifu should leave and never return. The Mbuti have no chiefs. They are a society of equals in which redistribution governs everyone's livelihood. Faced with banishment, a punishment nearly equivalent to a death sentence, Sifu relented. This ended the matter, and members of the group pulled chunks of meat from Sifu's basket. Among the Mbuti, as with most hunter-gatherer societies, equality is a system that enhances individual freedom. Following these ethical rules helps prevent any one individual from taking advantage of others or even dominating the group as a whole because of unequal privileges. However, just as it is in our society, the negotiation between the individual and the group is always a work in progress. There are times when our willingness to consider both the good of the individual and the good of the community 
still leaves us in a dilemma, and we're forced to decide between competing ethical claims. Affirmative action programs, for example, bring concerns over individual justice into conflict with concerns over social justice. How does one decide? When facing such dilemmas, the weight we assign certain values will sometimes lead us to promote the common good. At other times, our values will lead us to decide on actions that will protect the interests and rights of the individual. But perhaps the greatest challenge in discussions of ethical decision-making is to find ways in which paradigms are designed to promote the interests of both. I kind of liked what they said about drugs because that's a current topic right now. Um, Colorado and some other states have legalized marijuana. It's going to be on the ballot in Arizona. And his point wasn't yes or no. His point was, let's not just think about ourselves when we make decisions. Maybe we should also think about other people. How will it impact them? How will it impact society? It's pretty good stuff. Okay, so three things. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This next one here, I thought was mercy, and I studied it as such, and I believed it to be such, but then it jumped into my mind, it's not mercy, it's love mercy. Anybody can be merciful, but it really takes somebody to love mercy. It's not, oh, all right, I'll forgive you, or whatever, yeah, 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 I'll do it because it's the right thing to do, but to love to do it. To love to give mercy, that's what God wants from us. It's not something we force to do because it's right. It's something we do because we love to do it. Here's some great, more video, more examples of people who love mercy. I thought that was a black sheep. Apparently it's a dog.
There's more. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's not like the Bible is saying just be good to animals, but it is saying be good to animals. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. I just think if we can show mercy to animals, we can certainly show it to one another. That's what I'm trying to say. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I mean, this is the most famous sermon in the Bible. And one of the main things he says is be merciful to people. So while I was researching mercy, I found some cool Hebrew parallelism or poetry. It's a literary device for writing Hebrew poetry in the New Testament, which shouldn't surprise us because even though we have it in Greek, it was written most of it by Jewish people. But the thing that really amazed me is I read this story as you had probably hundreds of times and probably had never seen this before, like I certainly hadn't. So it's the announcement that the Messiah is coming and the word mercy in the announcement is used four times. And I had just never seen it that way before. Because if you think about it, if God's giving us a piece of scripture and he uses the same word four times, he obviously really wants to draw our attention to it. And what's the context? The coming of Jesus. So what's the main part of the coming of Jesus? Mercy. God sends Jesus because we need mercy. And he says it over and over and over and over again in just a few verses. Let's take a look. So here's the story, Luke 150, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. So we've got mercy in verses 50 and 54, mercy in verses 72 and 78, all about the coming of Jesus. And then to, to cap it all off is this little piece right in the middle. In verse 58, it says, when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So in these few verses, mercy is used five times about the promise of God in the past, about the fulfillment of God, which was their future, and the present of how God's showing Elizabeth mercy right now in her old age, letting her have a child. God is all about mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of us? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Humbleness, humility. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> and I like that a lot because it's simple. It's short and I get it. I think only a humble person can accept correction and learn. Makes sense, right? And if it requires humility to accept correction and learn, then humility can be considered the number one 
uh, prerequisite for personal and spiritual growth or development. The more we humble ourselves, the more we have the potential to grow. Back to Matthew 18. The disciples came to Jesus asking him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus called a child to come and stand in front of them. And he said, I assure you that unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. Back in those days, their culture was a lot different than ours. Where you were on the social ladder meant everything. Your goal in life was to get to the highest spot, and your biggest fear in life was to be on the lowest spot. Some people would kill themselves rather than be on the lowest spot. The lowest spot was a slave, and right under them were children. Slaves would take care of children. Children would be responsible to slaves. So even though a slave might be lower in one sense, they were higher in the other sense, the children. So the disciples are like, hey, how do we be great, man? We want to be number one. So what does Jesus do? He takes the last one, little kid, and says, there's your greatness. I'm sure they were looking at each other like, there goes Jesus again, talking in parables. Nobody understands what Jesus is saying. He wasn't talking in parables. Humility is so important that if you want to be great, be like that. He wasn't making stuff up. He was telling them, this is what I want you to be like. In fact, if you can't be like this, you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Spiritually speaking, humility and only humility leads to greatness. So I'd leave you high and dry if I didn't give you a little advice on how to become humble. I did a little research because what do I know about humility? <laughs> I'm going to teach you about humility because I got it down. <laughs> no, I found a good article, and I'll re- you know, just repeat some of it to you. Six ways to grow in humility. Here we go. Number one, acknowledge your weaknesses. And First uh, John 1.9 kind of is like that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I find that people who acknowledge their weaknesses find it easier to acknowledge their weaknesses more often. And I think that's the perfect path to humility because they get to the point where, you know, they just, they have no problem saying that's true of themselves. And I think we've got to start somewhere. So we'll start with acknowledging our weaknesses. Second way to grow in humility is to put others first. Philippians says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In our country, it's all about climbing the corporate ladder, claiming success. And sometimes we do that with this mindset. I deserve this. It's my turn. It's my time. I'm getting what I deserve. It's all about me. But can you imagine if we made that decision based on everybody else involved? Yeah, I could become chairman of the board of this corporation. 
what about these guys? We don't do that. We, it's so beyond our experience. Each of you should not only look to your own interests. It's not saying disregard your own interests. It's just saying consider others through your interests also. They have to come in part of your decision-making process. Number three, ask for advice. Proverbs 13, 10. Arrogance causes nothing but trouble. It's wiser to ask for advice. Arrogance causes nothing but trouble. Arrogance, that's the opposite of humility. So this verse is teaching us, without saying so, how to grow in humility by asking for advice. Because when you ask it for, for advice, you're acknowledging before yourself and before others that you don't know. And that is an act of humility. Or that you think you know, but maybe somebody knows better. So ask them. Ask for advice. And examine yourself. Let's say you've asked for advice 20 times this year. How many times have you applied the advice you've taken? It's one thing to ask for it. It's another thing to take it. You think I should do this? You think I should do this? And you think I should do this? Nah, I'm not going to do it. Humility. Number four, admit when you're wrong. It's very similar to acknowledging our weaknesses, but a little different. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we do not have any sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and we're not being truthful to ourselves. Now, not all wrong things we do are sin, but all sin we do is wrong. So this verse, I think, is applicable. And if we can confess it, we move along on the road to humility. Number five, Offer and accept forgiveness. I have learned about myself that it's easier to offer forgiveness than to accept it. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But that's why I put both in there. Because we need to humble ourselves to be willing to accept it as well, not just offering it. Colossians chapter 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Humility and forgiveness, they go hand in hand. And that's our fifth step in learning to grow in humility. And our sixth, no gloating or criticizing. You're driving down the road. You're going the speed limit. Some guy is on your butt, and he's trying to get around you, and he's laying on his horn. He gets by you. He flips you off, and he zooms by you at a zillion miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, and you can't help yourself. You say, what an idiot. He's going to kill somebody. And then within a mile or so, he gets pulled over. And you're like, ha! <laughs> Serves you right! Yes! Proverbs 24 then jumps into your mind. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased. Okay. So... You drive by, he gets pulled over, and you go, yes! Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you got to grow. You got to learn. It's hard because you want people to get theirs. 
but wait a minute, we're supposed to love mercy. People who love mercy don't want to see people getting theirs. Dang it, this spiritual growth is hard. But God tells us what he wants. It's the way he is. Do you think he's happy when bad people suffer? I know a verse that says, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord. <sighs> Being good is hard, but it's good. Well, six steps, Steve. It's oh, too many. Keep it simple, K-I-S-S. Can't you get it down to one? Yes, yes, I can. Philippians 2, 3. Don't be jealous or proud, but be humble and consider yourselves, consider others more important than yourselves. That's too long, too. We can cut out this don't be jealous or proud part, cut out the butt, and just start it right there. Be humble and consider others more important than yourselves. Wow. Wow. Okay, I'm not saying that's easy. But think about Jesus for a minute. King of the universe. We don't even know what that means. We don't even know what the universe means. But he is the king of it. Created it with a word. His awesomeness is beyond human comprehension. And let me tell you, we can comprehend a lot. We have an amazing capacity for imagination. And he's bigger than that. And he considered others, others more important than himself. What do you mean? He thought other people were better than himself? No. But he humbled himself and became a human being to die for our sins. Why would you do that if you don't think they're more important than you? See what I'm saying? What he did to himself? That's what I'm talking about. It's not like a head trip where you got to think everybody is, has greater everything than you do. It's just they're so important to you that you're willing to give up a portion of yourself for their benefit. There's this great Jewish scholar in the Middle Ages, around the 12th century, who wrote a letter to his son. Dads, look at the kind of letter he wrote to his son, and then maybe we'll start changing the way we start talking to our kids. His name was Nachmanides. He was a rabbi. And let me read to you from his letter. He said, I shall explain how you should become accustomed to the practice of humility in your daily life. Let your voice be gentle and your head bowed. Let your eyes be turned earthwards and your heart heavenwards. When you speak to someone, don't look them in the face. Let every man seem superior to you in your own eyes. If he is wise or rich, you have reason to respect him. If he is poor, and you are richer or wiser than he, think to yourself that you are therefore all the more unworthy, and he all the less. For if you sin, you do so intentionally, whereas he only does so, you do so intentionally, he only does so unintentionally. Now, I'm not telling you don't ever look anybody in the face and always keep your eyes on the ground, but I'm just trying to share with you what this great scholar was teaching his son about humility. Maybe the culture was different in those days. In our days, you look people in the eye. That shows respect. But maybe it was different in that culture. But either way, his reasoning is sound. You don't have the right to look them in the face because they're greater, wiser, and wealthier than you. Who do you think you are to look them in the face? He said it nicer. 
Ah, but dad, what if they're poor and humble and miserable wretches? Then you have no right to look them in the face because you know better and you still sin against God. So what right do you have to look in their face? They don't know any better, so they're closer to God than you are. I can't win, dad. That's the point. Be humble. Everybody's better than you are. Treat them that way. Now, these guys weren't, this guy wasn't a Christian, but he sure knew the Bible, didn't he? Wow. So that Philippians passage that I gave you just a taste of right here, be humble and consider yourselves, consider others more important than yourselves. There's a lot more to it. I would encourage you to memorize it. Listen to what it says. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I read that to you a moment ago. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you understand what the scripture's saying about humility? Our example for humility is the king of the universe who took on frail human flesh, submitted himself to abuse and execution for our benefit. There's your example. Do that. <laughs> That's pretty intense. A friend of mine who was the editor of a new Bible translation called the International Standard Version, which I've talked to you about a few times. The editor and his staff believed that this section of scripture was originally poetic in form. So they put it in a poetic form. Let me read to you their version of it. It's pretty cool. I'm not good at reading poetry, but you'll get the gist of it. In God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness, a servant's form did he possess, a mortal man becoming, in human form he chose to be, and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of everyone should fall wherever they're residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord, while God the Father is, while God the Father praising. God humbled himself to becoming a man. And that man was born in the humblest of circumstances, in a manger, to a poor family, and a Jewish family at that. And he spent his life ministering to others whom he considered more important than himself. He loved lepers, prostitutes, and pagans, and he washed his disciples' dirty feet. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, we see, we understand. It's simple, but it's not easy. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may be what you have called us to be. 
just, merciful, and humble. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.